Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. This is the song that we have for the one, the only, the Chris Ailman, Chief Investment Officer at Calster's Investments, <laughs> which is the second biggest uh, public pension in the United States. I love the little bicycle bell at the end. Of course, we use that song because you ride your bike to work every day uh, and listen to the show while you do that, which I absolutely love. You still riding your bike? It's been a bit too cold and way too rainy, so... But yes, I ride it at lunch as often as I can, and I still listen to the show regularly. <laughs> All right. So uh, talking about investments, because you do oversee uh, more than $200 billion of assets for a number of different pensions, uh, a number of different retired groups in California. Where are we right now? I mean, it seems like people are getting really pessimistic if you look at the bond market. But if you look at stocks, uh, we just had an incredible first quarter. What, yeah. what do you make of this? Well, and I've been very clear. I think people need to start taking their clue from the bond market. I don't think it should be as overly pessimistic as it is. And your listeners are educated. They get it. The yield curve is not inverted. Let's look at twos to thirties. Don't bother me with twos to tens. The fact that the curve has a slump in the middle of it, that's too bad. But if the whole curve got inverted, then I would be worried. I think Interest rates need to be more focused on the economy is okay. We just came off a very, very cold winter. People forget the the cyclone bomb and all the crazy stuff that went on this last January and February. So the economy should be a little bit slow in the first quarter, as it has been for the last three years. Well, the market seems to be discounting that the Fed's next move will be a rate cut. But if you're saying that you're, you think the economy is generally in good shape, you don't see that? I think the Fed should be and should constantly say they are data dependent. Not a headline they have been for decades, but Jerome Powell's got to learn his own voice and the power of that he's had in moving that market. And he needs to be much more cautious. They need to be data dependent. The bond market is kind of anticipating an ease, which I think is a little overextending. I think they're getting far, too far ahead of themselves. They're over the handlebars in bike terms. So they <laughs> need you. to really we back up and, and look at a data Look at data. Look at where we are in the first quarter. The Fed may well end up tightening at the latter half of the year, but that's a long time from now. All right. So let's talk about how that feeds into your investment thesis going forward. Uh, CalSTRS, the California State uh, Teachers Retirement System, I believe broke even for the fiscal year 2018 to 2019. Is that correct? We had a small loss, uh, down 3% um, on a calendar year, but I'm looking at fiscal years and I'm looking at a 30 year time period. So we're doing okay over 30 years. So are you adjusting though anything in terms of allocations for 2019? We've been very defensive at the start of even a year ago in, in July, we started to get too defensive and obviously the markets rallied in, in August, but then we were positioned correctly when you look at December. Such is life as a long-term investor in the markets. It's a roller coaster and you never know your exact position. But right now we're pretty neutral. So I'm not extending long in many areas and I'm also not being underweight in, in many areas. I'm a little cautious on equities. So we're right at the benchmark and a smidge under and we're long, long maturity assets like real estate, private equity, 
So it's sort of interesting that you said that that's where I was going to go. There was a J.P. Morgan survey recently talking about how uh, you know they basically surveyed a bunch of institutional investors. One third of them said they plan to increase their allocations to hedge funds up from a minuscule amount the prior year. Are you in that camp? Are you increasing allocations to hedge funds? No. Um, we don't consider hedge funds an asset class. We look at them as, as they are. They're 22 very disparate investment strategies. Keep in mind, to me, a hedge fund is a, a legal contract, a structure. The vehicle underneath it is what you care about, is what is their underlying strategy. And I think what they're saying is it's tough to be long an asset class right now, so they want to be in a trading type of vehicle that can be a bit more nimble and a bit more reactive to the world. Between Brexit, what's going on here in Washington, D.C., fast and slow economic numbers out of China, it's tough to figure out whether I should be in stocks, bonds, currencies, and where I should be in the world. It's interesting. The uh, you talked about the, this, you know, the volatility we've seen over the last, you know, six months. I mean, so if you're an equity investor looking at the S and P up 13 percent this this year, you could say, "Boy, I'm done." Okay, I, I've I've had my performance. I'm going to go away. However, if you kind of look at it relative to what happened in December, we're just kind of getting back to almost where we were. So there's cases for the bulls and bears, but it sounds like you're a little bit more on the conservative side from an equities perspective. Yeah, Paul, we're number one, we're investors, not traders. So I wish I could say I could get out of the market, but that is just never going right. to happen. We're going to be invested in stocks as long as they're public school teachers in California. That's right, that need. I try and say that to give people. It's We're talking generations that will be long the U.S. equity market. So from our perspective, um, it really has been a sideways market and it's been a choppy one. So it's tough for even the momentum strategies to make money in this kind of a market since you're swinging up and down 8%, sometimes in just a two month period. We're gonna be fairly flat to the US equity market right on our benchmark. We're a little bit underweight global equity because we're so worried about Brexit and questioning Japan. And then we're gonna be looking around the world Emerging markets is where the value is, but it's been so tough to go in, and it really is a question about your confidence in China and their economy. It looks like it's dialing back up and starting to grow, which is a good sign for the emerging markets. But even for a fund our size, it's tough to be long very far in the emerging markets. You said earlier that you like real estate and private equity. Where in particular are you seeing opportunities in real estate? Well, I like real estate because I think it's gonna hold its values. Um, I like occupied buildings that have solid lease and solid tenants because it gives us very we work. good cash flow. Um, <laughs> we have owned some buildings where we work actually exists, um, but you want diversified tenant base. That's the key. And you look at, at Manhattan, the gateway cities, uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago, even Denver, Washington, D.C., have held in there in their value. And then obviously the Vils. People love to talk about Nashville. Um, the, and Vils. the Vils. I've never and heard of that before. Of, oh, I love it. Talk to the real estate people. They've got acronyms the, for everything. The, I'm sure. But, <laughs> but even Austin, uh, those kind of markets are holding in there. And I'm not looking for a lot of capital appreciation, but what I'm looking for is steady cash flow. That's what we really get out of our real estate. So think about high yielding dividend stocks, and there's the value. And also real estate's very static. It doesn't move in price every day like equities. Interesting. So what is there any part of the equity market that you're just no interest in? I just that you're really underweight that's noticeable for you or you just given your size you're just kind of equal weight throughout the the index. Paul, we own the entire market as yep. a solid source, largest to smallest. Um, the one place that I don't have a lot of interest and in, it's not that it's a bad segment, but it would be microcap. 
At my size, it is impractical to try and invest anything material in microcap that would ma matter to my fund and then also make enough money. It's too problematic. The area that I'm worried about in the equity markets is how extended the tech stocks are. Um, I, there's a thing that I kind of believe in called earnings. I'm not sure people have heard of that, but <laughs> er, net er, earnings, er, net er, income. Not, not the familiar. lift investors, obviously. <laughs> uh, well, but we're back to that view is, is it's all about the growth. We'll pay whatever we have to to get the growth. Yep. I mean, I've been complaining about Amazon for since the <laughs> 1980s. Okay. How's that worked out? All right. <laughs> Chris, Chris Salman, Chief Investment Officer of California State Teachers Retirement System. $226 billion invested for the long-term we learned. We did learn some information about Saudi Aramco, which is marketing dollar bonds for the first time to uh, to finance its purchase of Sabic. We talked. We learned that it was the most uh, profitable company by certain measures in the world, earning 111 billion dollars in one year, dwarfing the amount of money brought in by Apple. Joining us now, I'm very pleased to say, Dr. Ellen Wald, president of Transversal Consulting, also a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center, a contributor to Bloomberg Opinion, and a uh, very uh, wonderful guest on this show. Dr. Wald, thank you for being with us. What stood out most to you about the financial disclosures from Saudi Aramco? Hi, it's good to be here. What what stood out most uh, most significantly to me was the number that Aramco is paying in dividends to the Saudi government. And we all knew that Aramco was a very profitable company. Uh, we didn't know quite how profitable, but the fact that it is the most profitable company in the world isn't really a surprise. Uh, but what's more interesting is that we learned that since the government lowered Aramco's income tax rate to 50%. Um, they had to be making up that money somehow, that, that deficit in, in money somehow. And I'd always suspected that they were getting it in dividends, but this information gives us a sense of just how much the government is getting in dividends. It's uh, $58.2 billion in, in uh, 2018. And that's a very significant number uh, and, and has uh, a lot to say, I think, about Aramco's uh, financial future. Should it ever uh, pursue an IPO on international markets? Um, it's really, uh, it's showing the government is still ending up with a lot of money. And um, even though it switched its, its income tax rate and could potentially uh, impact uh, an IPO in the future, particularly if it um, perhaps does offer this kind of dividend rate to other shareholders. Right now, the government is the sole shareholder, but if you do do an IPO, you've got other shareholders. Will they offer such lucrative dividends to other shareholders? If so, that could make Aramco a very valuable investment. Uh, on the other hand, they may choose to not offer that in their share classes, which might make Aramco not quite as uh, valuable an investment if they do IPO. Right. So, so, Dr. Wall, do you anticipate, or is it you're thinking that maybe this dollar bond offering that they're coming to the market with might be a precursor for an IPO? I do think it's definitely a way to test the waters to see what people, uh, how people uh, respond to this, what people make of their financial data. One of the things that we've seen throughout 
kind of Aramco's history is that it, it has been a very secretive company. Um, really, it's had no reason to ever share any financial data, which is why it's seen as secretive. But people have taken that to believe that something nefarious was going on. Perhaps Aramco was bleeding money to the government in uh, social projects or, uh, you know, palaces for the kings. And what we learned from this is that that's not actually the case at all. Uh, and so Aramco may be using this as a way to test the waters to see what the response is to uh, to this financial data ahead of uh, you know doing this this IPO perhaps in a few years and uh, releasing more financial data. Well, the interesting thing is Bloomberg oil correspondent Javier Blas put out a piece where he said that looking at this financial data means that the valuation of Saudi Aramco is probably closer to one point two trillion dollars rather than two trillion dollars. Would you agree with that? Uh, I'm not sure I'd, I'd agree with 1.2, but I definitely think that based on this data, um, the valuation has to be at least $1 trillion, uh, because if you're going to evaluate Apple and Microsoft at about a $1 trillion, then uh, this company is, is significantly, as you said, more profitable. So they've got to be above $1 trillion. So Just where they are in between $1 and $2 trillion is questionable, and I do think that uh, there's a significant liability that Aramco faces in terms of evaluation due to their connection to the Saudi government. Well, that was what I was going to say. I mean, how does a company go public and be uh, beholden to public investors when ultimately it still is very beholden to a government that can wield uh, authority over it and demand higher, you know, and tax it more, do what it needs to do, depending on its revenue streams? Yeah, and that's and that's a significant question. Uh, historically, Aramco has always had kind of a, a, a set tax rate, although it, at times it was actually an adjustable tax rate to make sure that the government had enough money. So there's always a possibility that that could happen again. There's also this issue. I, I would have said if you'd asked me that question five years ago, I would have said Aramco is a very independent company. The king really has a sense of this this company should be independent. They let it run itself. And, you know, they take what they can get, what they get from the company. But that's not the case anymore. We're seeing a king and also a crown prince who are much more involved in the various power centers of the kingdom. And that includes Aramco. And so uh, I do think when you're looking at at a future for Aramco, there's really no telling uh, what kind of demands the royal family may make on the company and what the future could hold. So far, none of this is really damaging to the core profitability of the company. The SABIC acquisition is not a significant, add a significant liability. In fact, may be more profitable for the company in the long run, but we just don't know. And that is a significant risk. Dr. Ellen Wald, thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Wald is president of Transversal Consulting. She is also a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center and a contributor to Bloomberg Opinion. Well, it looks like progress is being made between the U.S. and China on trade negotiations. Uh, Chinese Vice Premier Liu Hei is due to return to D.C. this week, uh, suggesting that uh, both sides are getting nearer to the final deal. To help us break this down and all things geopolitics, we welcome our friend Dr. Sam Natapoff. He is president of Empire Global Ventures. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Sam, thanks for joining us once again. Let's start with China. We'll get to Brexit later. But with China, it appears like we are moving towards a deal. Do you think anything is going to get done and when? Um, 
some things are getting done. These are generally at the tactical level. So last Friday, JP Morgan, for the first time in 10 years, was given permission to own a majority stake in their own financial concern inside China. It was both Nomura Securities and JP Morgan, and that hadn't happened for a decade. So things are moving at the tactical level because the Chinese government wishes to show that they are being flexible with the pressure that the US government is bringing on it. Unfortunately, at the strategic level, the important issues of intellectual property protection, uh, some issues of majority ownership and tech transfer, those are intractable because there's domestic political pressures on both sides. Um, um, the president of China can't look like he's caving into the Americans, and President Trump, as always, is looking for a clear, definitive public win. So if you could uh, give the odds here, what do you think the chances are of a deal between the U.S. and China within the next two months? 15%. That's one not five. What, that's that's <laughs> not what the market is predicting. That is out of consensus. Uh, the reason I say that is that there will be trivial things that will be going across. And uh, the president of China will sign a deal that says we'll buy $150 billion more of U.S. goods, particularly soybeans and U.S. agricultural goods, to make it look good on the front pages of the Wall Street Journal. But the things that matter, I can't compromise on because I'm in a sensitive position politically. That's why they remember March 1st was when they when Donald Trump was supposed to raise tariffs again from 10% to 25. He kicked the can down the road a couple of months. And they're going to they're desperately negotiating to try and make it look good enough, but they won't get there on the big things. The little things will be fine. 15%. Uh, it's very That's, specific. That is. <laughs> He's been thinking about that that question for a <laughs> Love while. Love it. So again, just remind us, um, Sam, kind of what are really the constraints in China to agreeing to more substantive issues? Uh, there's a great sense of a national pride inside China and at the rise of China as an economic and political and geopolitical power. The obvious counterpoint to the, the rise of Chinese influence is U.S. influence. And this contest, which is in both trade, economics, science, military, culture, these are areas of enormous sensitivity inside China. And uh, Xi Jinping cannot be shown to be taking a, back, you know, a step back against pressure from the Americans with whom he's had a complicated relationship. Furthermore, domestically, uh, Xi Jinping is under enormous pressure because the Chinese economy is slow and, and uh, internal and domestic uh, views of him and his government are beginning to sway because people aren't getting wealthier, jobs aren't being created at the same level. And you know, at the People's Congress two years ago, he was able to pass a constitutional resolution saying he could have another term, yeah. but that, that someone could have more than two terms in a row. It wasn't specifically him. The moment he says, I would like another term, his uh, political opponents in China, and there are those powerful political opponents, will turn and say, well, let's look at your record, and it hasn't been terribly distinguished to date. So uh, let's shift, uh, let's move from China to the United Kingdom, where there is another vote on Brexit, because it seems like every day there is another vote on Brexit. And what I'm struggling to understand is that there is a hard deadline of April 12th it doesn't feel like Parliament is all that much closer to some sort of resolution here. Well, the thing to remember is what Mark Twain said about today, which is today is the day we remember what we are the other 364 days of the year. And this is the moment when Parliament is walking in again and Parliament has taken away control of the Brexit process from the executive branch, from Prime Minister Theresa May. 
And now they are desperately looking for some kind of a solution. There are three outcomes in general order of likelihood. It's a permanent customs union with the European Union. It's after that a second referendum. And third, it's a no deal Brexit. Generally, people want to avoid a no deal Brexit, except for 170 conservative MPs who signed a letter to that effect that they wanted it last week. But thank goodness it's not up to them. We'll probably, you know, Parliament now understands that in 11 days, Britain is looking at an economic catastrophe. And they can't, um, the, the government of Britain and Goldman Sachs have done similar analyses saying this has cost Britain a billion dollars a week since June 2016. It's cost about 2.4% of their GDP since the referendum to say they want to leave. They need to fix their economy. This is a real problem. And today, there are going to be more indicative votes but they have to come to a solution. Either it's a customs unions plus or minus, or it's a referendum, and with the referendum comes a general election. I like the referendum choice myself. I've been calling for that since day one. Let's let's just do a do-over here. So what are the chances of Everybody, a referendum? Paul Sweeney is calling <laughs> yes. for another referendum. <laughs> Please. What are the chances of this referendum? And then is there, what's the polling saying? Not that the polling was accurate the first time, but what is the polling saying about an outcome of, of a second referendum? Uh, I, it's enormously difficult to know because polling is all over the place and it's still very difficult to tell because Britain is very split on this topic. And the terrible irony is that this is an entirely politically created crisis. It was created by the Conservative Party. And Benjamin Disraeli, the Prime Minister of Great Britain in 1874, noted novelist, said in one of his novels, there was a great deal of shouting about conservative principles, but the awkward question did arise, what will you conserve? And Theresa May is faced with the problem. She can either conserve Britain as a functioning modern economy as part of the EU, or she can conserve the Conservative Party. She will have to choose between the two of them and in the next week. Dr. Sam Nadipoff, in 10 seconds, what is the chance of a hard Brexit right now versus where we were two months ago? 20%. Right now, 20%. Today, 20%. And what about two months ago? 40%. All right, so we're moving closer to some sort of resolution, maybe, perhaps. Well, Tom, Tom Keene is over in London. He's on Westminster Green. Maybe he can help get some, some deal brokered. Okay, well, we'll, <laughs> we'll, 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 hope our, we'll, we'll hang our hats for uh, on Tom Keene. Dr. Sam Nadipoff, president of Empire Global Ventures in New York, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Paul, I cannot wait for this conversation. Do you have yes. an Alexa? Uh, or a yes, Google we Home? do. You yeah, do? we have something well, that my son installed. <laughs> something that he installed. There is a big question as I think 8 billion digital voice assistants uh, are predicted to be in use by 2023, which is how are people using these devices? Joining us now, Colin Morris, Director of Product Management for Adobe Analytics Mobile, based in San Francisco. Colin. So how do you determine, what? how are people using these devices? Um, so right now, a lot of the devices are uh, over mobile smartphones, um, smart speakers, a little bit in the car, a little bit on tablets, but in general, they're uh, fairly rudimentary home applications. So interesting, Colin. So just this market, is it seems like it's just, you know, exploded over the last couple of years. You've got Amazon Echo, Google Home. Just give us a sense of how quickly the growth in devices has, has been. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, in our in our last uh, survey where we had about a thousand U.S. consumers let us know, seventy seven percent of people you know reported increasing their use of voice assistance in the last year. That's up from fifty four percent the year before. So not only is it is it exploding because the uh, the devices are obviously selling a lot, but also the applications are getting better, right? The AI behind it is getting better, and it's allowing a lot of brands to get into experiences with the consumer that they haven't been able to before. Especially because voice assistants are a medium; it sits on top of a lot of different devices. So a media and entertainment company can now provide an experience in the home, or an automotive company can provide a continuous experience in the home as well, or on other services. But when you talk about a continuous experience, you're talking about playing music? Uh, beyond music, hopefully. <laughs> but uh, imagine, for instance, if you're using a voice-assisted uh, remote control speaker for your cable company, right? And that cable company realizes that based on your preferences, they can offer other reminders for shows or promotions of other personalized content. So um, that allows them to extend their brand beyond the confines of the uh, device that they're in and also provides a better customer experience. So it can be music. It can be checking your stocks. It can be you know news flashes. But um, the potential for voice assistance to provide a more immersive experience um, for a lot of brands is pretty exciting. So Colin, how quickly are these devices and the apps that uh, are on these devices, how quickly are they getting smarter and doing more and more complex things for consumers? Yeah, great question. Um, I think now that the error rates um, have lowered uh, year over year between you know inflections and syntax, um, all the things that have kind of shown a poor experience uh, over the last few years, the AI and the machine learning behind it is really. Uh, come leaps and bounds. Um, you know, think about chatbots as well. It's not just voice assistance overall. Um, but again, because there's so much of a testbed now, because so many uh, consumers around the world are using it, um, that just helps train the models and helps uh, better data provide better experiences. I have a friend who won't get a digital assistant because she doesn't want her children thinking that they can bark commands at something and have it respond. <laughs> they think that it's really bad training. And sure enough, when I talk to my Alexa, I do find myself saying, Alexa, volume down. It isn't, it isn't very nice. Is anyone focused on that and sort of promoting uh, better sort of verbal skills? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, wait till they start responding, right? Um, <laughs> that's not very nice, Lisa. <laughs> that's not a very good inflection. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> one of the interesting areas is gaming, right? Because gamers are, uh, gaming app developers are always pretty uh, out on the forefront in terms of what experiences they provide. Um, like the Jeopardy app, for instance, by Sony is the number one uh, Alexa gaming uh, app out there, skill, I should say. Um, so there's a lot of uh, AI that's coming back in terms of responses and having more of a conversation. It's not going to be your therapist tomorrow, but it will be more immersive overall. And we It might be. See, who knows, right? <laughs> it might be. We see longer session times now and longer interactions over uh, over the medium in general. And it depends by, obviously, which device it's on right now. A home speaker is there. It's stationary. You're in the home, so you're going to have a different pattern of use than, say, talking to your car, whereby you might be a captive audience, but the trips might be shorter or so longer Col in some cases. Yeah. So, Colin, one of the pushbacks I know from some consumer advocates is privacy. What is your yeah. survey telling you about about, you know, consumers and their concern about privacy. Well, the concern about privacy is real. I think within the last few years, obviously, there's been uh, a number of problematic issues um, in the tech industry in general. 
We at Adobe really push the experiential privacy uh, promotion to a lot of our uh, customers in general, meaning that you know we we encourage brands to let the consumers know up front exactly what they're trying to collect and what the benefit is for the consumer, because when it's transparent and it's open, it's much easier for a consumer to say yes or no. If a lot of data is being passed in the background and the consumer doesn't know about it and then something happens, obviously that's problematic and it erodes trust in the brand. Colin Morris, thank you very much. Colin is a director of product management for Adobe Analytics Mobile, joining us from San Francisco on what is just a, a really interesting technology here that just seems to have, have it really exploded really over the last couple of years. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.